0: So a few weeks ago, I um, was down. I'm to knock Joe. I'm to Joe. And um, down sit out back, read a book. The weather's good, you know. rest of my work's done. Just kind of nice and quiet back there. And so I'm sitting out in the back. You know, if you're ever going to come Joe, you know that you come in from the back. There's like a back, I don't know, patio back there. There's tables and chairs when it's nice out, anyway. And uh, I'm sending out back drinking my double decaf extra dry cappuccino. <laughs> reading some Joel Richardson, It's always a good read. In fact, I just want to tell you that if you have not read his book, When a Jew Rules the World, you, if there's one book you're going to read the next year, you need to read that book. But anyway, this is about Joel Richardson. So I go to the cup almost every day for coffee. That's my favorite indulgence. I know all the staff. Some of them I know really well. Um, And so I'm sitting down back and I'm having my double decaf, extra dry cappuccino. And one of the gals comes out, one of the priestess comes out, she's tearing up the trash. She stops to talk a little bit. She kind of unloads about how it was the anniversary of the suicide of one then, on top of that, another friend that just had a major car accident, that killed him, and we talked for a while about life, and a little about faith, and prayed for him and that sort of thing, see, I thought I was going for coffee that day, but God had entirely other reasons, I think, for bringing me there that day, yeah. that time, and sometimes what we think we're really going all about is really not what God is up to. Um, and putting us in some place at some particular time. And Paul and company are gonna experience something very similar in today's passage from Acts 16. Now, we're at the point in Acts chapter 16 where Paul and Silas and Timothy, they've crossed over the sea right from Troas and they've gone into Macedonia, they've ended up in Philippi. And in Philippi, they met this woman named Lydia, uh, who was a businesswoman selling purple goods from Thyatira that tower was famous for its purple goods. Um, And so she apparently had also come to to Philippi there and um, she meets with the apostles and she becomes a believer and they come and they're ministering out of Lydia's house. Lydia was obviously a woman of some means and successful in what she had done. Um, I know we sort of get this weird idea that in the ancient world, All women did was was stay home and, and, you know, bake pies in the kitchen or something. That's not true in the slightest. Um, While, yes, at times they didn't really have the rights, men did, yet there were many very entrepreneurial women in the Roman Empire um, who were very successful. And she was obviously one of them, and she became a believer. And so we're going to pick up the story today in verse 16 where our missionaries are heading out to talk about Jesus. Now, remember Lydia and her household have become saved at this point, and they're kind of working out of Lydia's household. And uh, Paul, goes, they go out one day, and Paul's going to cast out a spirit. Verse 16 of Acts 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and thus crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God. Who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, which as you get to know Paul, you find out it doesn't really take much, much, right? Turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So one of these occasions when our missionaries are going outside the city to this place of prayer because the the place of prayer was not within the city. They encounter this slave girl, and she has some kind of spirit by which she can, to some degree, predict the future. In fact, the Greek word literally means, when it says this, this weak translated spirit of divination, in Greek it literally says she has a python spirit. Because the python, remember, is the spirit, or is the symbol of the Delphic Oracle. Now, if you've never heard of the Delphic Oracle, it was this place where these prophetesses were in ancient times, and they represented the god Apollo, and people would go there and give them money to get prophecies and predictions about the future. And so Romans, by their very nature, were very superstitious. And so having a slave girl who could make these kind of predictions really meant that this was the veritable gold mine. And somehow, in this, she, she lashes on to Paul's preaching. And she's following him. It says for days. So you can understand why Paul's getting a little annoyed after a while, right? I mean, after an hour, I'd be getting annoyed. For many days, she follows him around. And she's following him around. And she's shouting about how they're servants of the Most High God and proclaimers of a way of salvation. I say a way of salvation because in the actual text, the definite article does not occur there. There is no the in the Greek. And what's fascinating to me is all the modern translations put a the in there, and almost every commentator I read points out that there's no the in there. It's a way of salvation. Okay? So I don't know why the modern translators add one, when all the modern commentators say there isn't one. And I mean, you can look at the Greek and it's not there. Anyway. Now, none of this. Gentiles of that age. This idea, of this term God most high, we see it in the Old Testament for sure, but that same phrasing was also used in the Roman world to talk about Zeus. He was the God most high, right? The head of the Roman gods. And the idea of a way of salvation, that that, that would be confusing to the Gentiles too because the Greco-Roman world was, was full of saviors. In fact, the emperor often would dub himself, he'd come back from a campaign, right? Leading the war, he'd call himself the savior of the people. Okay. And I think that explains why Paul finally just had enough. Because she was confusing the message. She was making things unclear. What she said was technically true. But it was open to so much misunderstanding that Paul had to put a stop to it. The truth could not be easily condensed that way for Romans who come from a background, a polytheistic background of all these gods. Jesus might be just seen as another savior among all the Greek gods. So you could have some Zeus and some Apollo and some Athena and a little Jesus. You know, hey, if you were from Egypt, you'd have a little Ra too and, you know, whatever. You know, modern missionaries often deal with this same problem. When they go into polytheistic cultures, if they're not extremely clear about how Jesus is presented, it is easy for polytheistic cultures to just synchronize the message and just bring it in and add Jesus to among their other gods. And I think this is what Paul is trying to avoid here. That Jesus isn't just another god among The only God. And so Paul, which is kind of in a, a, a form reminiscent of Jesus' exorcisms, commands the Spirit to exit the girl. And the Spirit does so immediately. Now, as a side note, I'd like to point out that every time you see an exorcism in the Bible, it is not a long drawn out, weird, wacky affair like some horror movie from the 70s, if you know, you know. Thank you. It ain't nothing like that, folks. Never in the Bible was an exorcism like that. Keep that in mind, That's all I'm gonna say. I could go down that rabbit trail for a long time. Here comes Peter Cottontail. But the thing is here, the spirit of divination is not the only thing that vanishes all of a sudden. Because with the spirit gone, the owner's prospects of a further profit also go right out the window. And that's going to lead to some trouble for our team. Where the missionaries are going to be falsely accused. We're going to pick up in verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city." They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in and attacked them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, the magistrates here would be the, the man who tried civil cases and were basically responsible for maintaining law and order in, in Philippi. They were generally the highest authority in a Roman colony or a Roman city like this. They would be they would report to like the governor of the province. Okay, so they didn't have mayors back then. They're kind of the equivalent of the mayors and city council all rolled in there, <coughs> but with a lot more power. And the owners of the slave girl, if you notice, are very careful about their charges to avoid the real issue of them casting out this spirit and the resulting loss of profit. And so they make two sort of nebulous charges. First, is that these guys are disturbing the peace of our city. Now you gotta remember the Romans really liked order. They were the original law and order people. The other charge, maybe the only one with a little bit of merit. This idea that they were advocating customs unlawful for Romans probably has to do with them proclaiming that Jesus was the only way or the only God as opposed to Caesar. Because of course, remember the emperor was also considered a god. But it's, I think it's the insinuation of a threat to the civil order that really wins over the magistrates, especially in light of what Luke tells us about the crowds joining in, in the protest. Crowds are going crazy. Magistrates are looking around and like, thinking, you know, remember, law and order all the time. We can't have this. And so they have Paul and Silas stripped for scourging, and the police, uh, the, the Latin word, I've always just liked the, this is not in the text, me, the Latin word for the people who did this was the lictors. I always wondering, is that the word, where the word "licking" comes from? Because, right? man, when I was young, I, Dad looked at me, i was going to lick it. <laughs> it. didn't mean I was going to get <laughs> So they, they, they're beaten with rods. You know, they were cane, like wooden rods. Um, probably this is one of the three instances, right? In 2 Corinthians 11.25, talks about, Paul says three times he had been beaten with rods. And so this is probably the first. And so finally, they're thrown into prison, they're placed under tight security, the jailer puts them in the innermost part of the prison, the innermost cell, he puts their feet in the stocks, fastened probably fastened to the walls, and the chains are there, and you know, they're kind of chained up. And of course, there, there's a lot of emphasis Luke gives here on the security, the tight security in which they were held, because it's gonna make the miracle of their subsequent deliverance all that more remarkable, because I mean, they're really under tight security. They're in the inside, they're in the innermost part of the prison. Their feet are fastened, they're chained up, they're under guard. But I think what's interesting here is we are told nothing about Paul and Silas's defense to the magistrates. Right? They're brought before the magistrates, the charges are made, crowds going crazy, boom. You're getting whacked upside the back of the rod and off prison with you. You don't don't hear anything from Paul and Silas. And I suspect that they may have tried to explain themselves, but once the crowd joins in and things are getting kind of chaotic, they are not given time or opportunity to truly defend themselves. This is really important because this is going to come back to bite these magistrates very hard the next day. Because while Paul and Silas were not only innocent, the magistrates had just broken Roman law in multiple ways. But the real story here, the real appointment, the real divine appointment, is what happens when they get to jail. Because God has an entirely different purpose for them while they're spending the night in prison. This is really not about law and order or about the magistrates or any of that. This is about what awaits them in prison. And it's a good reminder to always remember that whatever the presenting reason for some trial or some situation in our lives might be, that may not really be what God's up to. It may not be God's reason for allowing it to happen. Because here we're going to see how the jailer comes to experience real freedom. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them to the same same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. He brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the third miraculous deliverance in Acts. And this one is a lot like the one in Acts chapter 5. In chapter 5, the apostles are, are in prison, prison's open. They don't run away, they willingly return to the Sanhedrin for their trial. And because of that, the, the miracle strengthened their position before the Jewish rulers. Acts 5. Here another similar kind of thing happens, right? They're freed, chains are free, chains are off, doors are open. But Paul and Silas don't attempt to escape. The miracle could have delivered them, but rather we see it delivers the jailer from his sins. It's the middle of the night. Paul and Silas, they're in there, they're singing hymns of praise to God. You know, when you read the stories of Paul and whoever else who lived in prison, they would be the most annoying people to have in prison I could possibly imagine. Here I am in the cell next to them, right, trying to catch some Z's, and they're singing. Right? Everywhere they go. But what's great about that is if you read through the book of Acts, one of the themes that kinda just sorta runs through the book of Acts is that even in the midst of great trials, they're in prison, bad things are happening, they're shipwrecked, all that, Paul, the apostles, the people that are with him, they're always still full of hope. They never give up. Chapter 12, Peter sleeps peacefully the night before his trial, right, before he's free. Paul and Silas, here they sing. You read that later in Acts multiple times. And and their their praise and their, their hope and their good cheer is itself, I think, a witness to God and to the other prisoners as they listen. Then this earthquake happens. And everybody suddenly finds themselves free. The chains attached to the walls and wrenched loose by the violence of the quake, and they're they're able to go, right? Just like in the song. Chains are gone. Oh, we're going to sing that one. The jailer's awakened, spots the open doors, figures, well, prisoners all escaped. Draws his sword to kill himself. he preferred death by his own hand rather than by Roman justice, jailers were responsible personally for their prisoners. This is kind of why you notice this whole household is there, because the jailer, his house would have been next to or above the prison. His whole family would live there. He's responsible, right? And if you lose your prisoners, you would be beaten and scourged and then executed by the government. Not just, you know, given like a pension and a desk job. Bad news. But the jailer's prisoners did not escape. <clears throat> Paul looks up and he sees what the jailer's about to do and he's like, "Whoa! Oh, don't, don't kill yourself. We're all here. Okay. Don't do it. Now remember, Romans were very superstitious. Jailer would not have missed the connection between the earthquake and the releasing of the prisoners, but yet them not escaping. This would be, he would see this just as we do, as, as a real miracle. He would, he would realize that Paul and is God that he had to listen to them singing about all night was the real deal. I mean, he had the power to free the prisoners someone to be reckoned with. And so he comes with this question, what do I need to do to be saved? Maybe, he, uh, maybe he'd heard some of the things the servant girl had said. He certainly had heard Paul and Silas praising God and singing hymns and that sort of thing. Maybe up to that moment he hadn't fully understood, but now he knows something really big is afoot. He'd asleep to the sound of Paul and Silas' hymns. I don't know. But man, the miracle of the earthquake and the prisoners who haven't fled, that really got his attention. And his heart now is very open to receive Paul's message. And here we find Paul and Silas exactly in the right place at the right time. Now, at some point, the jailer's household enters the scene because, remember, their household would have been right there with them at the jail. And the message is shared, and the household is saved. Right? Because that's another theme you see in Acts, right? Whenever you saw this with Cornelius, okay. and you see this elsewhere. Lydia actually to, when, when 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 the head of the household comes to know the Lord, the whole household comes to know the Lord. All together. We see this over and over again. So then the jailer realizes that, you know, hey, these guys have been beaten. He sees their suffering, so Scripture tells us that he bathes their wounds from the beating. And I think you notice how that's in the same sentence as the baptizing, and I think that Luke was being purposeful in setting up the dichotomy of how interesting it is that the jailer washes their wounds, and then Paul baptizes them, the symbol of washing away their sins, and the jailer takes them, and, and in most unusual fashion for prisoners of a jailer, he takes them into his house. They're fed at his own table because, of course, they're no longer prisoners to him. They're his brothers in Christ. Now, we can see, of course, because we get the whole story in one annual chapter, we can see in hindsight that God had a plan all along, it seems. Paul and Silas would be in the jail at the right time so the jailer and his family could be saved. That probably wasn't on Paul and Silas's mind when they were getting smacked in the back with rods they were getting locked in the stocks. But God had them exactly where they needed to be, even in the midst of their trial and suffering, so a life could be changed. Now, the story's not over yet. Although my literature teacher in high school would have, would have said that we had reached the, that was the name of the story, right? The, the plot has been resolved. But Paul's still got one more thing. When it was day, magistrates sent the police, saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come up now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, maybe not. They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned. Men who are, Roman citizens, now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. Yeah, oh, oh guys. Big mistake, Andy. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them, I'm guessing, very kindly. Please just leave So they went out to the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen that the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now Luke doesn't really tell us why the next morning the magistrates changed their mind and decided to release the two prisoners. I mean, the fact that they want to get them out of town seems to me that that's probably what they were more interested in, rather than trying to keep them incarcerated and having to go through all that hassle. And the jailer, he's thrilled for them, right, because these, these are his friends now. He's like, the magistrates have come and said, hey, you can go, go in peace. And Paul's like, "Mm, not so fast. He was not going to go. He insists that the magistrates come to the jail in person and apologize and request their departure. The magistrates have made a grave error. Because he, and apparently Silas also, were Roman citizens. Oops! You see, non-citizens, magistrates could pretty much do as they like. Flog them, put them in prison, kick you out of town, whatever. But the magistrates had publicly beaten and thrown in prison Roman citizens without a trial. That was very bad. They had scourged and imprisoned two Roman citizens with no formal trial or condemnation, and that was way beyond their authority. In fact, there was only one person in their empire who had that kind of authority, and that was Caesar. Everybody else got a trial. If you were a citizen. In this case, magistrates are apparently unaware that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens, probably because they never took the time to let Paul and Silas explain themselves. They, people come charging them with silly stuff that they've never done anyway, and the crowd is freaking out, and the magistrates are like, oh Lord, what are we going to do? Beat them and put them in prison. Abuse of the rights of a Roman citizen was a very serious offense in the end. Magistrates, at the very minimum, could be removed from office for doing such a thing. In fact, when magistrates in a city or a colony did this, the entire city could be punished, could have its rights as a city reduced for doing these things against a citizen. Rome took citizenship very seriously. So the irony, of course, here is that Paul and Silas had been treated like criminals, but they were innocent, And the magistrates who condemn them are the ones who are the actual criminals. So obviously they lost no time in getting to the jail when they find this out and requesting the departure of these citizens. Sure, they were still concerned about all the commotion that Paul and Silas had stirred up and they wanted to leave town, Just, just get them out of town. So Paul and Silas, they depart, they visit the Christians, right, they go to Lydia's house because that's where the house church is. And they're satisfied that everything's in good order and they leave for the next city. Now when we read that, I mean when I read that anyway, I'm thinking, okay, I just got beaten with a wooden cane, stuck in prison and God's delivered me for prison. I think I'm ready to just go. So it might seem like to us that Paul is ungrateful in his demand for an apology from the magistrates. But I think that he knew it was essential in every city, wherever there were churches, for the, for the Christian communities there to have a good reputation with the authorities. Throughout Acts, Luke makes it a point, whenever there's an interaction with the authorities, to show that the Christians in question never break any Roman laws. It's important that the magistrates acknowledged Paul and Silas's innocence and set the record straight so that Christians could not be accused of breaking the law. That's another important application of this passage. In any ministry we pursue, <clears throat> I think it's really important that we are always above board and following the law. We should always make sure to, to make sure everything that we do in the name of Jesus is completely above board. I think all these ministries where there have been these. Financial improprieties, where the leadership is acting in very un like ways, that does nothing to help the cause of holding out the life of Christ in the midst of the dark world. We always need to be making sure that wherever possible we are doing things the right way in the sight of all people. Now, the flip side of that, also here, I think just as, is just as important is when our rights are being violated by the government, Paul's actions here and later on, right, because the Roman citizen thing's gonna come back to haunt them later on, when they take Paul prisoner again in another city, suggest the way Paul handles these things, we are not wrong when our rights are violated to pursue remedy within the context of the law. We don't have to just roll over and let the government or other bad actors just steamroll us. We can work within the law to pursue justice as long as we do it in a godly manner. But the main point I want you to take away from today is that God's purposes are not always apparent to us. So Paul and Silas came to Philippi to start a church, right? And they did. Church of Lydia's house. My guess is that they did not suspect that the casting out of a Spirit was going to create such a ruckus for them. But that action placed them in exactly the right place at the right time to see an entire family come to know the Lord Jesus. It was painful for them to get to that point. I mean, literally. But God uses them in that place at that time for lives to be changed for eternity. And you're going to notice every time something goes wrong in the book of Acts, we see the apostles rejoicing, singing, and making the best of it. And we can learn something from that. Because we surely need to take advantage of every opportunity God sends our way, even when it doesn't seem like an opportunity that we really want. It can be one to love or serve someone. What seems like a mess from our perspective might turn out to be exactly what God wants to happen for God to completely change someone else's life. You may be that person in the right place at the right time. We tend to like to focus on the mess itself. It's so easy for us to get distracted by what happened. But Acts would suggest to us to look for the purpose and see how God can use us in that mess. It's a God-ordained appointment. And those God-ordained appointments like Paul and Silas found themselves in here that often show the true power of God and his caring, even for people who maybe are the ones sort of causing our problem in the first place. So whether it's a major incident like Paul and Silas going to jail or just a casual conversation outside a coffee shop, One of the things we need to be ready to do is to love other people and be the ones who will speak up for Jesus whenever God sends us one of these holy appointments in our lives. Let's pray. Father, you are are always at work. All around us, you are working. Paul and Silas certainly see that here when you work in such a way jailer and his family are delivered from sin and death and judgment through the power of Jesus. It was a pretty uncomfortable way of getting there, but they were in the right place at the right time. Father, help us to be constantly open and observing to see where you're at work, because you too often have us in the right place at the right time to minister to someone. Help us to be ready. Ready to not just focus on our own mess or the struggle or the trial, but to look to where you will use us to minister to others.